Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're discussing the Global Wealth Report, the 14th edition of which was published this past week. The first launched jointly by Credit Suisse and UBS. This year's report reveals valuable insights about the state of the global economy and society, as well as the shifting meaning and potential of prosperity. The GWR's sweeping analysis of household wealth covers the estimated holdings of close to 5.5 billion adults around the world and across the wealth spectrum. It looks to future trends, helping to frame expectations, understand the ever-changing nature of wealth creation, and better conceive of the power of wealth to broadly benefit society. We have a great panel with us today to discuss the report and its findings. We start with a regular guest, Paul Donovan, Chief Economist in UBS Global Wealth Management, who helped frame the introduction of the report and, I'm delighted to say, joins us now. Paul, uh, to kick things off, uh, give us a little bit of a a few headlines, I guess, about this Global Wealth Report, the 2023 uh, edition. Uh, Really interesting, of course, um, working with uh, colleagues across uh, UBS and and, and in Credit Suisse, of course, as well. Um, Remind us what the the Wealth Report uh, does and and give us the overview as to why it provides so, so many compelling talking points. So what we're trying to do here is to look at what is happening with wealth around the world, not just of financial assets, but also non-financial assets. And that's very important because things like housing wealth, pension wealth as well, this can all be very, very important to understanding um, how affluent different societies have become. And we're looking at over 5 billion individual wealth sources around the world. It's a very, very important and broad assessment. And because UBS is really, you know, the the major global, truly global wealth manager, this gives us a lot of insight, I think, into where potentially private investable capital can be going. And that's very, very important because, as we identified several years ago with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, with the the movement towards creating a more sustainable and equitable future, private wealth has a really important role to play in this. Because, yes, government spending, government regulation will also be playing a role, but private wealth is going to be leading in achieving a lot of the sustainable development goals that are so essential to humanity's future. But before we start talking about you know, how in private investment or private philanthropy is going to be undertaken, we have to obviously understand where the wealth is, how it's growing and how it's held. And that's why this report is so important, because this helps us to identify where potential sources of private capital are around the world and how they can be mobilised. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How much of a challenge is it to understand how to navigate periods of change? And you and I, Paul, have spoken often about the the sort of the moment that we are in at the uh, the present time and how much that comes down to having the right data sets to to look at. Because we talk about the UN SDGs. We know the huge scale of some of the challenges, but you also need the information, don't you? And presumably that's where uh, the work done by uh, colleagues like Annette, uh, Professor Anthony Shorks as well, and, and others who we, with whom we're going to speak, they provide so much uh, data and points of reference that help to start addressing some of those huge questions. 
Absolutely, because this is this is really critical that you know, when we're talking about investing in sustainability, for example, or if we're talking about uh, creating more equitable futures, understanding where the wealth is, uh, understanding how that can be mobilized is very important. And of course, if your wealth is coming predominantly, for example, from real estate and your growth in wealth is coming from real estate, that has implications for equality, for you know how people access wealth. But it also has other implications for investment. It potentially limits certain forms of investment. It's all very well saying, well, you know, we need to invest more in renewable energy. But if you're actually tying up your wealth in real estate, that doesn't have the same flexibility as financial wealth. So understanding these differences is absolutely critical as a starting point. Um, and I think that this is where the, the report offers so much insight, because we do get this breakdown into the different wealth sources. We also get a sense of how fluctuations in wealth are affected by things like fluctuations in exchange rates, which has been a big issue in this particular report, where we've had more movement in exchange rates. And all this sort of thing has to come together so that we can properly assess how to mobilize the forces that we need to achieve a more sustainable, equitable future. Uh, Paul, we're going to talk, as I've mentioned, with other colleagues and we'll dive into the piece in more detail. But just to get a couple of remarks from you on some of the headlines, uh, obviously, one thing that does jump out and we know about uh, 2022 and some of the challenges, this edition of the report does uh, describe uh, a a decline in global wealth for the first time since 2008. We obviously know the reasons then, uh, which is interesting. But there are some other... Uh, upsides. Um, just maybe give us one or two thoughts on some of the big uh, kind of um, trends that the, that the report identifies. Well, the decline in global wealth has to be seen in uh, the context of two key things. Firstly, the fact that the dollar was tending to appreciate. Now, because we use dollars as, as sort of the common currency, that means that if your assets are in a currency which is weakening against the dollar, then the value of those assets in dollar terms goes down. And that, of course, when the dollar is rising against global currencies, as it did in 2022, that will tend to reduce wealth in non-dollar countries. And so that's been part of it. This is just highlighting the problems of exchange rates and fluctuations. The other thing that's worth highlighting is the is the impact that inflation generally has had, that inflation has been eating away at wealth in a number of countries. So you know, even if you adjust for the fact that exchange rates have been perhaps distorting the numbers a bit, your inflation has also been a bit of a drag. And that is important, I think, to recognize that there, there has been Uh, damage done to global wealth in 2022 as a result of the fairly temporary inflation that we've had. Nevertheless, it has done some damage. Now, as we look ahead, uh, what we are seeing is uh, an increase in the number of people who have, I think, um, a a reasonable amount of wealth backing them. This is going to be important as we start to contemplate aging societies. People need wealth. Uh, to be able to support themselves in old age. And we are now in a situation, of course, where measured by GDP, roughly half the global economy has a declining population. So accumulating wealth is going to be very, very important. And one of the things that the report is projecting is the fact that 
uh, what might be referred to as middle class wealth, so that's uh, over $10,000, um, the number of people in the global population with middle class wealth is likely to go up, and the number of people below that threshold is likely to fall below 50% within the next five years. Now, that's very important because that is giving us a little bit more security as the global population continues to age. Paul Donovan. Well, let's continue with Nanette Heschler-Faderb, Chief Investment Officer for the EMEA region and Global Head of Economics and Research at Credit Suisse. Alongside her, we welcome Anthony Shorrox, economist, academic and in recent years, leading work on wealth research for Credit Suisse and now UBS and one of the report's authors. Nanette, Tony, welcome. I'll come to you first, Nanette. The Global Wealth Report is now in its 14th edition, as I mentioned earlier. It's a familiar report to many, but for the uninitiated, remind us what the aims are each year with this piece of work. I think the objective of the Global Wealth Report is really to account for all the possible trends that we have observed in in global wealth, whether it is its geographical distribution, the speed at which it is growing, where it's been growing, by what type of assets, across generations and in different population groups or wealth groups in real or in nominal terms. I mean, these are all examples of understanding better how wealth, private wealth, household wealth is developing from one year to the next and then also over longer periods of time. I think it's been an essential information for a global wealth manager because it really serves as a bit of a data and statistical backup of business development decisions and also possibly understanding of risks. Absolutely. Perhaps, Tony Sharks, I can turn to you next. Tell us some of your the insights that you gained from this year's edition. I mean, there's an absolute wealth of information, but maybe pick out some of the, the most intriguing uh, insights as you see it. The aspect which most uh, strikes me this year has been the, the volatility that we've seen from year to year. When we started doing this 20 years ago, we could see each year it was more predictable but since the start of the pandemic, we've had some really big volatility changes from year to year. And to a large extent, these have been linked to asset price changes. We see now bigger swings in house prices, in share prices, in exchange rates. Uh, we've seen how interest rates have changed. We've seen these changes in inflation. All of these price changes are really feeding in to the wealth numbers in interesting ways uh, that we didn't have before. Uh, one aspect of it, one implication, one consequence is that we get big changes in wealth growth from year to year in terms of average wealth. We've seen that particularly in the past two years, there was a really record growth rate in, in 2021. And then in 2022, we see a decline, at least in terms of measured in terms of US dollars at current exchange rates. But again, here's another aspect. Exchange rates have changed quite a lot. And if we look at it in terms of uh, exchange rates in 2021, there was growth last year rather than a decline. So these things are, are happening. And it also feeds through to the inequality and distribution aspects. Uh, we see here it's because 
on the whole, uh, the people at the top of the distribution have a higher proportion of their assets in uh, financial assets. And so they tend to benefit uh, more when uh, equity prices increase. So when equity prices increase, you tend to get an increase in the share of the top world holders. If house prices increase, that tends to benefit more the middle groups, which have non-financial assets, and uh, non-financial assets are largely in housing. So when house prices go up, they tend to benefit as opposed to uh, at the expense or relative expense of those in the top groups. So we see this changes in inequality as measured by the, the typical measures of the top wealth shares and the GD coefficient. We see how last year, or at least two years ago, wealth inequality went up. This year, wealth inequality has gone down. And this is very much linked to, you can see them, uh, we report on this in, in the report, uh, how this is linked to changes in the relative uh, um, magnitudes of uh, financial assets and, and real assets. Uh, well, yeah, and just to follow up, I mean, obviously, we're in this extraordinary inflationary environment, and that must be a, a big change from some previous editions. Can you just tell us a little bit, Tony, about how inflation specifically affects the results? Of course, if inflation gets higher, then people's wealth values tend to increase. So we get an increase in wealth, at least in nominal terms. On the whole, it probably doesn't do too much, makes too much difference to uh, wealth growth in in real terms, but it does have some other implications. For example, this year we look and see if we're looking at the number of millionaires over time, of course, one million dollars today is not the same as it was one year ago and certainly is a long way from what it was 20 years ago. So we tend to have a large growth in the number of millionaires. The millionaires have roughly multiplied by a factor of four this century, but at least some of that is due to real increases in wealth that we've seen, but also some of it is just due to the fact that uh, achieving a million dollars is is rather easier than it used to be. We did some calculations this year and we, we looked at what we call the uh, inflation millionaires, the millionaires that we're still counting this year, but uh, would not have qualified if we had uh, raised the standard and set the standard at the same as the real standard as last year. So that would have increased. You'd need another $61,000, I, I recall, in order to uh, meet the millionaire standard of last year in real terms. So there's a lot of people between a million and $61,000 that wouldn't have qualified if we'd uh, adjusted the, the benchmark. As it happens, yesterday I was asked a question about how does that compare back to the year 2000? And so I did the calculations uh, yesterday. It turns out that if we look back to the year 2000, then we would have to raise the bar by something, I think a little over half a million dollars. You'd have to have over $1.5 million now to be at the same real standard as a million dollars in the year 2000. And in fact, roughly speaking, half of the current millionaires would no longer qualify. In other words, if we used the benchmark $1 million in real terms in the year 2000, something like half the current millionaires would not qualify. 
And that means that instead of increasing by a factor of four, since the year 2000, we really had an increase, a doubling in real terms, and then another doubling of that, just due to the fact that we've, uh, we haven't been adjusting the threshold in line with inflation. Nanette, earlier Paul Donovan was talking about the likely rise in middle class wealth. Tell us more about that development. Oh, absolutely. Often public media and specialists are focusing on the extremes of wealth, whether it's the top of the or the bottom of the pyramid of wealth. But we believe that uh, the median wealth, or in some other words, the middle class wealth is really very important to keep an eye on. I mean, the median wealth is effectively the experience of wealth that the average household in the world is having, or if we take a look at a country, that the average household in a country is having. And particularly in a polarized time, as we have now in so many countries around the world, it is so important to keep an eye on what is the experience of wealth of the average household. Is it improving over time or is it deteriorating? And the answer to that question, at least over the last two decades, has been the median wealth holder in the world has really lived through a big success story. Median wealth per adult has seen a several fold increase as compared to 2000, the beginning of, of this century. And much of it has to do with the extraordinary rise of China as a, as a very large, very important economy, very populous economy as well, but also the average household in China has been a very big driver of the wealth increase, the median wealth increase at a global level. And I think the good part of the story when we look towards the next five years and towards the future is that we see this trend of middle income countries, effectively these are the emerging countries of, of today, uh, who are all going through similar experiences, perhaps not quite as marked as for, for China, but who are all expected to see and contribute the median wealth holder to increase. So much so that probably the world as a whole is going to see uh, over the next five years for the first time, the average wealth per adult globally to surpass 100,000 US dollars. And that would be a very, very important level from a historical standpoint there were some interesting uh, regional variations. And that was something I thought you could also touch on for us. Maybe some reflections from you on some of the regional, well, differences or similarities. What jumps out? Yeah, they're really different experiences from one year to the next in terms of how regional wealth has been doing. And largely because we we report wealth in one common currency, which is the US dollar, these different experiences much have to do with what the exchange rate to the dollar is doing for various countries. In some instances, the dollar has become more expensive against other currencies. This has been largely the case in 2022. And so in dollar terms, these countries have tended to become poorer 
in in such a year as 2022. But then uh, there may be some different years where it's exactly the opposite. So the exchange rate plays a very big role in how we would report in dollar terms the developments of wealth around the world and across different regions. But then it is also a fact that financial assets and especially non-financial assets are going through very different cycles at different times in the history in different countries. And so especially in those geographies where there is a very large share of non-financial assets, for example, domestic real estate, domestic housing, which is part of, of household wealth, that could lead to a very different trajectory of wealth, household wealth in a particular country. So what is worth highlighting in 2022 is that we have had overall the first year of a decline in global wealth, once again, very largely driven by some of these exchange rate fluctuations we lived through in 2022. But uh, geographically, it meant especially that um, Europe, for example, was one of the regions that saw wealth losses. In the United States, there are no such currency effects. But of course, financial assets, which had a tough year in 2022, were then responsible for also wealth losses in the US and more largely North America. And at the opposite spectrum, we would um, have seen in 2022 Latin America as a region gaining in terms of um, wealth in dollar terms. So these were very interesting developments. One should not overemphasize those annual uh, developments because we have already seen that much of what happened last year has already been partially or fully reversed in 2023, for example, financial assets have rebounded. And in contrast, in a number of countries, real estate markets are going down. Uh, the dollar is not quite as strong as it was in 2022. So these annual fluctuations should not be uh, overemphasized, but certainly they do contribute to different regional experiences in any given year. How accurate are the results? Tony Shorrocks. Obviously, we try our best to uh, get the highest quality we can, and we think we achieve this as closely as possible. But there are a number of issues. Wealth uh, statistics are still in a fairly infancy. They're not collected by that many countries, so we are constrained in that way. We use as our benchmark what's called the household balance sheets. These are uh, national income accounts are drawn up to somehow split the assets that are in a country into different sectors. And we look at the household sector. And essentially, they try to capture what are the things that someone owns and can sell and how much would they get if they sold it. So there are ownership issues and their valuation issues. The definitions don't always correspond, I think, to what other the, the man in the street, uh, so to speak, might uh, think ought to be included in wealth or excluded from wealth. The main thing that we are excluding 
is uh, what's called human capital, the uh, the present value of future earnings or projected expected future earnings. That's not included. And the reason is really you're not uh, on the whole able to sell that and realize the value of that asset. Obviously, things like property that you own and uh, financial assets that you own are included. Uh, what we do include, which the main difficult area, if you like, is to do with pension assets. When people have their own pension rights, when they have their uh, own pension investments, then that's obviously included. And we also include if you have uh, rights to occupational pension schemes and they are that value, those values are, are set aside, then they're included. But we don't include state pension rights or, or for a pay as you go basis. And this simply reflects what is done in the national accounts. We don't make any judgment on that. We just follow other people's rules. There's quite a lot. Uh, I, I should just perhaps warn people that there's a lot of other valuation issues as well. Um, we obviously try to include some sorts of consumer durables, uh, larger durables, particularly cars tend to be included, sometimes smaller transport vehicles, works of art, that type of thing. But obviously, there's a lot of things which people own, which they might have spent quite a lot of money on, which they could in principle sell, but are not really included in the, the normal definitions of household wealth. Nanette, perhaps finally, some thoughts and reflections from you on the outlook, the prospects for future growth. Where are we going to get to over the next five years? And what are some of the factors shaping that journey? I really feel optimistic about the future. When we are looking at some of the drivers of the last um, two decades and are projecting forward how to think about the, the wealth, average wealth and median wealth in the world for the next five years and beyond, we are still expecting wealth to grow. We are particularly expecting wealth to grow in some of these middle income countries or emerging countries. And when you think about them being really very populous countries, I mean, take, uh, for example, India or Indonesia or many Latin American nations, um, it is also feeling like uh, a larger part of the population being included uh, in higher shares of wealth, in higher segments of wealth worldwide. I, I feel very positive about these expected developments. Nanette Heschler-Fader, and before that, Anthony Shorrox, bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS. Listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club and subscribe to the magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts. And as ever, you can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.